Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of The Brief. Daily Coast is The Brief, our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Melissa. I'm here with co-host Carrie Aleveld. We have what is going to be maybe a little atypical show for us because, as you may know, if you're listening to the show, we're hard-charging partisans, right? We're, we're, we're fighting for the liberal truth in American way. We're fighting for a better, better more progressive America. And... Part of that process, just almost by default, is that we have a very clearly identified enemy. And I'm going to put that in square quotes, scare quotes, enemy, the Republican Party, conservatives, QAnon, uh, the people that are standing in the way of that more progressive America. Today's guest is going to be an old friend of mine, a journalist up in Seattle, author of the forthcoming book, uh, I Never Thought of It That Way. Her name is Monica Guzman. Her book is I Never Thought of It That Way. And it's about how to understand the other side. How to not, it's not a book about how to convince people. It's about surviving as a society in a deeply polarized way. And Carrie, you have an immediate sort of reaction to that very idea as we were talking before the show started. What was it? Direct quote. It was, it was F that. It was F that. No, I mean, look, I'm, jo- I'm kind of joking. So we, we, you know, if we're going to get into personal stories here. We drove up to Seattle, uh, where my brother lives, for Thanksgiving. And on the way up, we went through, you know, so we live in California, Northern California. We went through way North California, way Northern California, and then Southern Oregon. Um, Stopped in Portland, then drove on to Seattle. In any case, we went through some redder areas of the country than where we live in the Bay Area. And there was this one woman on a playground who had this shirt, this T-shirt on in the playground. She was like overseeing, you know, some like five, six and seven year olds. And her shirt said, fuck your feelings. <laughs> it's like, you know, she may not be someone I want to strike up a conversation <laughs> with. I don't know. Like, so <laughs> anyway, I, so, I, I wouldn't I was, either. I'm not even the right person. I, I, I have family members that are right wing, Trump loving, and, and these are all Latinos, but they're all like right wing, Trump loving, borderline deplorables. There's a lot of toxic masculinity. And when you look at why Latinos maybe have, you know, Trump made gains ab- amongst them, toxic masculinity is a big part of it, I, I believe very firmly. Can I, I ask where out. they live? Can um, I ask where they live? Texas. Or, Texas. Texas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've cut them out. I mean, there might be there might be some pleasantries on on somebody got married, whatever, right? But like, I I have zero interest in interacting with them. They do not share my values. I think their views are actually dangerous to this nation, and I've actually just systematically cut them out of my life. Monica, as we'll, we're going to find out, is Mexican. Her parents are Mexican immigrants. They are Trump supporters, and so she talks about how how she how that relationship survives 
despite, and she's a liberal, they're conservative, how, how that relationship sur- survives. And, and it's actually kind of fascinating because it does, my initial response carries is like yours, right? Like F them. Like, well, I don't want to understand them. I don't care about them. They're, they're, they're a menace to our society. But the reality is, is that we're not doing so well electorally. We barely beat Donald Trump, who should have been blown out of the water. We just lost the New Jersey everything races, and we almost lost New uh, sorry Virginia. We lost in Virginia statewide, all statewide offices, and we almost lost in very very blue New Jersey. And a big part of that is that they're better at talking to their own people. So a lot of this is even you know oh why don't why don't people of color or young people why don't they vote. Right. And there's an accusatory, accusatory is that the word, um, tone to that. And I'm, I'm guilty of it like anybody else. Right. Rather than understanding why our own people aren't voting in the midterm election, why aren't they motivated the way I am motivated to vote? Then there's the, you know, people that might be that might be uh, persuadable, you know, like college educated suburban white women in the Trump years. They started swinging our way. They snap back this year, this November in Virginia, New Jersey, they snap back. So we're not doing a good job of convincing anybody to come our way. We're not doing a good job of convincing our own core supporters to turn out and vote in the necessary numbers. And that's all a communications issue. Like we are failing the communication game. So Maybe they're just not listening, Marcos. Maybe they're just not listening. Maybe oh, clearly they're not listening. (laughs) (laughs) But right, I mean, let's be let's if we're going to point fingers here, let's point it at the proper place. No, I'm just kidding. But no, there's something there. There is absolutely something to this idea. Like if we're not communicating well, maybe it's time to get past that like reflective anger at the idea of engaging with people that offend us. And maybe start thinking about a better way of engaging because politically it's not doing us any favor. So, right. So I, so I agree with some of that. I'm going to push back on just a little bit of it. I mean, number one, I'm not so sure that, you know, what we saw in Virginia is a snap back, right? It's a, it's a moment in time. Um, But you're, you know, you're correct that it seems that we lost uh, some of the engagement that we got with suburban voters in Virginia that we gained during the Trump years. Obesity isn't so sure that that has to do with our poor communication as much as some just, you know, natural sort of evolution of the or natural cycle based on who's in the White House and whatever. And the fact that people just like many people just hated Trump, you know, even if they were Republicans, they hated Trump. Now there's obviously he has this loyal cultist base, but um, in any case, but, you know, I mean, so I come from the Midwest. Um, We are generally sort of conflict averse. Um, uh, So, and, and I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan in East Grand Rapids, which is suburban West Michigan. And uh, I think about this all the time because Number one, my father was a Republican. Uh, he's no longer with us, but he 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 was a Republican who was the Kent County chairman of the Republican, Republican Party in 1976. Whoa! When I was six years old, the first the first you know election I remember, my first campaign that I remember was Gerald Ford, who was from West Michigan, you know, versus Jimmy Carter, and me what? having this revelation that my dad might not always be right. So. <laughs> What? We're, talking, we're talking Jerry what? Ford. We're talking yeah. Ford, like the most yeah. cuddly, inoffensive Republican yeah. I could possibly think of. 
<laughs> right. Right. So, wow. so anyway, and my dad was like a Jerry Ford Republican, which is why by the end of his days, you know, he not only was, e- even though he wouldn't let go of the Republican label, he just refused to, um, you know, he refused to believe the party was being so, so, so cleaved away from him. But for his last three presidential elections, I think he voted Obama 2008, Obama in 2012, I'm pretty sure. And then Hillary Clinton in 2016. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, I've seen people go through changes because I had a conversation with my father about George W. Bush in 2004. And I was like, how can you how can you, you know, explain going in, you know, invading Iraq on a on a total fallacy, on a total lie? You know, I mean, and so, you know, in any case, I, I think I think there are some suburban voters to be had with you know, with ways of engaging them that are not offensive, that are not so aggressive. And I wonder about this because I'm engaging with some of them as a parent, you know, um, at the school that that we go to. And, you know, and so I wonder when I hear one of the fathers say to me, who's, you know, a good guy, nice guy, but, you know, well, both sides do it. You know, that type of like media narrative that and he's very informed, like he's up on a lot of the different things that come. And I don't think he's like a 24 seven Fox News watcher or anything like that. He's I think his parents are conservative and, you know, he's he's kind of got some influence on both sides. And, you know, I wonder how how do I engage, you know, someone like that in a constructive conversation about not conservatism versus liberal about saving our democracy, you know, about the fact that, you know, to me, it's not just, we're not, we're not just trying to vanquish conservatives just for the heck of vanquishing conservatives. We're, we're trying to save the, the democracy because the Republican party is no longer invested in democracy, in democratic principles. And so I, I actually think it's super important that, where we can, and sometimes it's just too fraught, you know, with family members, it can be too fraught, but where we can, we try to engage people in a way that draws them out rather than shuts them up. God, that's, that's incredibly beautiful and eloquent. And it actually kind of surprises me, Carrie. I thought you might be more <laughs> resistant to Monica's I'm, message. I may end up being the more resistant person. Yeah. And, and she's a friend. And I actually blurbed that book. I offered, because it's actually a fantastic book and not just because of the politics side i actually think the advice she offers is great advice for relationships for businesses dealing with your boss and your coworkers. um it's just communication how to communicate effectively and from that i mean literally that touches every facet of our lives is communication and because there's always going to be conflict it's how you understand that conflict means you know almost means everything and so i'm, I'm a little there's a little bit of a plot twist here, Carrie, <laughs> because what you just said is actually incredibly powerful. And I think it's people should know that as much as everybody complains about oh, the Democrats can't message and, and that's a party, it, it's lacking uh, for lots of reasons that we don't need to get into. But the most powerful influencer in somebody's life is going to be their family. It's going to be their their friends. And so if you have that person, I mean, People get lost to Q land and that that's a whole nother level, I think, right? Once you're 
you know, you, you're, it's cult, right? Once you're trapped into a cult family, none of that matters. They, yeah. they systematically actually work to cut off, cut off those connections to family and friends because they know that's the biggest threat to their hold, to their ideological cult hold on individuals. But absent of that, there is nobody more powerful in convincing people to, to move in a different direction than their friends and their family. And so it is, you know, if you, you know, you're frustrated because why are people voting for Trump? Everybody like me, I just cut off those family members. I didn't engage. Well, how big of a mistake have I made by cutting those people off instead of somehow trying to engage? Now, what Monica will say in her book, and I read her book, she, it's not a book on how to persuade people. And this is the piece that I really want to sort of explore with her uh, more deeply. Is It's not a book about uh, persuading people. So where, how does maybe being able to better understand somebody else, how does that lead to a better outcome than the polarization that we have right now? That's yeah. the challenge. Yeah, and, and I, I should... You know, I'm in favor of of cutting, you know, people some personal slack, too. I mean, these times are very fraught. There's a lot of pressure on all of us to get everything right, you know, Um, and, you know, and and repairing familial relationships that have, you know, gone taken a turn for the worse is very difficult. It's 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 more than just political. Right. It's super personal. Um, so there, there may be people watching right now that were like, I just can't imagine doing that. And maybe, maybe in your personal, in your personal life, like that is true. Maybe, maybe from just a mental health standpoint, as someone who's queer and knows a lot of people who had to just cut out their parents because their parents were convinced that they were evil and said terrible, terrible things to them and just, you know, really cut into their self-esteem and, you know, whatever. There, there are many queer people who just had to walk away from their families or at least some people in their families. And so in some, t- in some cases, I do think there's a mental health component to, you know, I can't do this with my family, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other places where you can do it. Um, you know, and, and, and yeah. Yeah. I was, that's even, that's, you say that, and, and I, I will take your word that a lot of people have to have to walk away from their families. We know that's true, right? That's, that's not controversial. But I will say that the gay rights movement was effective precisely because it humanized being oh, you're gay. Right. It was that right. communication. It, it might be the single biggest communication victory in progressive politics in the last half a century. No, absolutely. When all, when all of the pollsters were like, how come, how come, you know, Marriage equality, support for marriage equality has moved 10 points in a decade when support for abortion and, you know, and has been sort of like steady, more or less within a five point range or whatever yeah, you know, views on abortion for, yeah. for like 50 years. Right. It was it was those kitchen table conversations. And while there were some people who had to just walk away from their family, there were many, many more people who had those conversations and their parents, you know, made the adjustment. Their parents showed up for them. And even if it took time, 
had an evolution. And, you know, I had those conversations with my parents too. And fortunately, you know, specifically with my father, my mother had mental health issues, but specifically with my father, he was immediately supportive. And that was such a blessing for me, um, for him to just say, this is no big deal. Like you're my daughter, you know, but in any case, those conversations, um, that was, you know, what, what, I, what I like to think of as an emergent movement, where there's a lot of people who aren't necessarily being told what to say, but during the, during the AIDS catastrophe realize, if I don't speak up and say my truth, then literally people are just going to turn their cheek while thousands, tens of thousands of us die, right? And um, that created a generation of conversations that moved the needle on LGBTQ rights in a way that we haven't seen in any social movement for, for many years. And the people who I think who have done the best with that since um, and have been um, uh, dreamers, uh, you know, DACA activists. Um, they, they have just been amazing in telling their story. Um, and they're not convincing family members. They're convincing an even harder group of people, which is people outside of their their main sphere of influence. So anyway. Yeah, I, I do wonder and definitely want to discuss this with Monica when, when she arrives and she actually has someone to introduce her in a second. But the gay rights, we talk about this, what I think is the greatest communication victory in progressive politics in you know half a century was the intent to persuade people to be pro-gay rights or was the intent to just have people understand that this exists? Like, I don't know. And you know this a lot better than I do. Was it a persuasive effort? It didn't feel like that, right? Here's here's what I'm saying is, I don't think this was guided by any hand from above. Um, If you know anyone who's queer, you know, you know, we're black, white, brown, uh, you know, yellow, we're, we're atheists, we're Christian, we're Muslim, we're, you know, we're all different Multi- genders. Multi-gender, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're all over the place. So yeah. there's no one messenger. In fact, in some ways that helped us, but it also was like, man, this is like, why don't we have, you know, an MLK or someone who, you know, um, it, it sort of speaks for everyone in a way. And we just never had that person because there, we had Lots of different heroes, don't get me wrong, but not one person that everybody looked to. And I think it was because it was such a diverse movement, um, you know, and uh, culturally diverse, background diverse, et cetera. In any case, so I I don't think that people went into this thinking, I want to politically persuade anyone. I think that those kitchen table conversations didn't happen. They happened out of, you know, a desperate moment in time where we were going through a public health disaster and a generation of queer Americans said, I have to speak my truth or people are just going to watch us die. So all you're doing when you have that kitchen table conversation, you're not asking people to politically engage. You're saying, here I am. I'm human. Please see me for who I am. Uh Uh-oh. Little, <laughs> get a little clamped over here. Anyway, so yeah, so, let's, you bring, know, let's bring our guest right, on though, because this, this in, is yeah, yeah. So our guest today is Mon- She's a Seattle area journalist, Monica Guzman. She is author of the forthcoming book. I never thought of it that way, which is available for pre-order on Amazon and maybe elsewhere. Old friend of mine, Monica. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. It's great <laughs> to be here. So Monica, this is this is uh, it's interesting because. Um, 
we're very partisan. You're coming in, you're arguing that there's a, there's a way to, to um, better understand each other as a society that maybe isn't this partisanship. And I want to explore that in the time that we have today. But first of all, um, can you tell us what the book is about and what motivated you to write it? So the book is about how if we can't get curious across divides in a polarized world, we can't see the world at all. And that without being able to see the world and see the people in it for who they really are, there's a lot we're missing. And then everything we do, when whether it comes to like policy, activism, but also our own relationships, is based on a whole host of misperceptions that we're not doing enough to check. So it's about approaching people in a different way than what is normal in our discourse these days. And we all know that what is normal in our discourse this, these days is not great, <laughs> not very effective. People have their own host of reasons for thinking, this isn't working, but it's clearly not, right? Whether you're partisan or not, whether you're exhausted or still in the fight, something about the fight has to change. So what led me to the book is a couple of things. I'll mention a couple quickly. Uh, I'm liberal and my parents are very conservative Mexican immigrants who voted for Trump. And so that has been a very interesting tension to navigate, but it also helped me see that when I saw a lot of my liberal friends say some things about people who voted for Trump that I just kind of knew eh, that, that, isn't, that isn't right. There's more to it than that. And I think we can get more curious and open and see more. Why? (laughs) (laughs) How? No, so so no pressure. But I I canceled therapy with my therapist this week because I was like, I'm going to have an hour of talking about family and, you know, building bridges. So who needs therapy in a week? Like, no, I'm kidding. So, uh, but, but, you know, I, I, so I, I, uh, I applaud your curiosity because I, as a journalist, curiosity is one of my number, you know, just be curious about people, things, situations, processes, et cetera. Um, uh, but, you know, I think my first question is, is how do you, how do you get over the hump, you know, in such a personal situation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not dealing with family, then maybe you can, ha- you know, you can pull back a little bit. You have the opportunity to pull back a little bit. But, you know, I mean, I- immigration is such a personal issue. Um, how Latino folks are treated and, you know, and, you know, I'm talking about everyone from, you know, Americans to immigrants, et cetera. Um, but, you know, this is so personal and, and Trump's treatment was so bad. And I just wonder, like, in such a personally fraught situation, how you get yourself to the point that you got yourself. Oh, you mean me personally? Yeah, yeah, you personally, yeah. And you're saying the point that I got myself to this place of wanting to even be curious? Yeah, wanting to be curious, thinking I can try to bridge this gap. I can find a way of communicating about this that doesn't just you know, send me off that, that it also isn't um, that also isn't a betrayal of who I am, you mm-hmm. know, personally and my personal beliefs. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think you've gotten to something really core, which is that our personal beliefs feel very much a part of who we are. 
So to even want to get into a conversation with someone, that means that you, you feel like you're putting them at risk. You know, there's a lot of things to be afraid of when you're crossing that bridge. You know, first of all, you might be triggered in an, in an, in an, in an infuriating way. They'll say something that you just, God, you just know that's so wrong and so off. And probably something inside you says, but if you just react, it's not going to go well for anyone. And you're probably only going to feel worse. So why bother? Plus, you know, you have your deep convictions about these other beliefs are harmful. So how am I possibly going to go and look across the aisle? Now, how I arrived at that, again, many paths, but I'll talk about one. Having been a journalist for 17 years, I've had a lot of conversations that are increasingly rare, it seems, in the world, which is conversations that are focused on understanding without judgment. So my job has been go and talk to somebody, understand their story, understand why they're interesting, because my job is to help society understand itself. So I do that without judgment, and then I come out and I try to tell the story as loyally as I can to that person's real experience. Um, Having done that a lot, I've learned that a lot of the assumptions I come in with with someone's story are just wrong. In fact, most of them, in fact, pretty much all of them, I can always be surprised. So it's led me to this place of whatever I think this other person represents is probably incorrect. There's probably a whole heck of a lot more to it than that. And if I choose to just continue to believe my assumption and presumption about this person and their beliefs, I might be missing something that will actually help me see myself in their story and will make the work ahead of me, you know, if it's activism, if it's pushing a cause, more effective anyway, because I'll understand more of the intricacies and complexities that actually make it up instead of you know, actually pushing something a little bit ghostly, a little bit false, a little bit too monstrous that isn't even the world that we're in. So there's this interesting dynamic here that that when I first talked to Carrie about about your book and your your sort of overall thesis, her reaction was just really like, F that. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, no, you got to give this, you got you to really consider it. And then I like did some introspective Self-reflection. And I'm, I'm the worst at this, right? I've, I've cut out family members who offend me politically. Um, I consider them deplorables and I want nothing to do with them. I run a site that is predicated on actively, um, on, on really um, pushing partisanship as a, as a way to mobilize people and to get them engaged. Um, and I don't apologize for that. I'm, I'm a fierce partisan, and I believe in that very strongly. I, have, I believe in certain things, but I also understand that from a communication standpoint, have I missed an opportunity to influence those family members? Have I, have I contributed to a, a culture that has actually harmed Democrats and liberals electorally? Like, we, we have the numbers. We should be winning a lot more. We're not for, mm-hmm. you know, we're not communicating to our own supporters. We're not communicating to persuadables and certainly not people who already written off as deplorable. So, so I'm at a point where, and your book was a big part of this, Monica, is where I'm starting to like reflect back and wonder what have I done that has contributed to this? And is there anything I can do to change that? And, Mm -hmm. and Carrie, you know, as we were talking about this before the show, she was a lot more open and, and even at the beginning of the show, before you came on talking about how she wants to be able to connect with some of the parents at her child's school that, might be gettable, but you know, are 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 on the wrong, quote, wrong side of the mm. of, of the political divide. And one place, Carrie, where, where this has really come up, and as I reflect, is on issues of rural 
America, right? Where Kerry has been really strongly in favor of Democrats engaging in rural America. And I'm like, F those. They're all deplorable. They're all gone. We can't win them. They're trapped in Fox News land and mm. Facebook. I know I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I know I'm wrong. <laughs> Can you tell me why I'm wrong? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, first, let me say that I don't I don't want to come across First of all, as someone who's like, oh, everyone, let's just wake up tomorrow and be super zen-like toward everyone and just forget our pain and traumas and just like walk right up to people and just be like, you're a human being. Like, I know <laughs> I know that's unrealistic. And I, I know I that- I valley girl. <laughs> well, sometimes you just got to adopt a little, you know, but, um, <laughs> but like, it's good that we have partisans. It's good that we have fighters. The fight is good and important and it must never end. And I think sometimes the the perception is that, oh, you know, trying to embrace more curiosity or stay more open to, I don't know, that we may not know everything we should know about people and there might be common ground to find means that I am being disloyal to my convictions, that I'm abandoning my values, right? But what I would say to that is, so first sort of the reason why, you know, I think that you, Marcos, and you, Carrie, and, you know, everyone listening to the show should try to get one level more curious than they've been not wake up Zen like talking to everybody, <laughs> but one level more curious is because if your goal is to persuade, you are in this for the fight. You have strong convictions and a set of experiences and values that back them up. You have a story. Like Carrie, before I came on, you were saying, you know, people need to be seen. You need to be able to be out there and be like, this is me. You're not seeing me. You know, tons of groups of people feel that way, right? And the way to do that, the way to actually be seen is not to go out there and yell and shame and try to guilt everyone into seeing you. I think we've, we know from the last several years, all the evidence points to that is not working. So there, there is sort of like what you're talking about, Marcos, like coming up to this point of going, okay, <laughs> so this is the way the world is. What is my strategy? What is my strategy for being seen and for having these messages and things that I need to be acknowledged actually be part of the conversation. And I think I think that the main thing is what you were saying about gettables, right? It makes sense that the strategy is sort of who can you get, who can you not get, and that the whole game is persuasion. But I think that's actually the blocker. That because we are so dead set on, it's got to be on persuading them that we're right. We're not really focused on what we can learn from them. Because again, what we can learn from them always feels like an abdication of what we believe. But without understanding more of what led people to their beliefs, I just think there's no chance to do really adequate persuasion. Somebody gave me a quote the other day I thought was so good. And it was, um, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. <laughs> and I loved that. It's like people can kind of like raise the white, what the white flag just to get you to shut up. But you didn't actually make an impact, you know, so you're going to need a whole new strategy. Did that answer your question? I feel like I might have missed. Um, I I don't think there's a real clean answer. I think it's all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is this is all part of a conversation and trying to understand the things that drive me and and why they drive me. And and so, um, Carol, let me ask you this and then you can you can feel the next one. But if. I think it's very clear, as you say, you're not trying to convince because that that. you say it sounds condescending, I think, as you've written, and that's you're trying to be curious about them. How does curiosity, because here's the thing, when I think, okay, trying to be curious about them, I think of the upteenth 
New York Times articles of rural America diners, right? And we're all roll our eyes and like, oh, here we go again. Because mm-hmm. we're not down in Mississippi talking to the, you know, Mississippi Delta black community about what they think. It's always about what Trump voters think time and time again. Like we're sick mm-hmm. of Trump voters and what they think. Where does curiosity lead to profit, quote, profit, like better mm-hmm. relationships, persuasion, a, you know, for partisans in America that moves towards our positions? How, what does that chain look like if it even exists? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Sherman County, Oregon is a rural county in Oregon that um, I led a trip to go visit from Seattle. So there were 20 Seattleites. We all went down. We had these structured kind of conversations to get to know folks. And several of the Seattleites who went down along with me were, as you can imagine, this was 2017, completely confounded. Just, I can't understand this. These people have to be awful, awful people to have voted for Trump. There's no other explanation, but something in my mind is telling me I better go check it out and see if there's something I'm missing. And this is like so, an 80% Trump county, I bet, right? I mean, it's 74% it's, went yeah. for Trump in that county in 2016. It actually went up for 2020. So while we were there, they really learned their lesson after right? talk about buyers remorse. It went, no. yeah, it went the other way. No, but like a lot of folks who had gone to the trip said, oh my gosh, they went the other way. You know, they got even more curious, but we haven't done a return trip. Anyway, while we were down there, and, and this question very much on, on the minds of, of the liberals who went, like, how? Uh, one farmer stood up, his name's Darren, and talked about the reasons he voted for Trump. Um, you know, he said, I have, I have no problems with same-sex marriage and a lot of these social issues. But he talked about something the waters uh, called the Waters of the United States rule. And the Waters of the United States rule is federal policy that is about bodies of water and when they could fall under federal regulation. And a lot of farmers are super nervous that the rule could be interpreted to cover these like rain, rain made seasonal ponds on their land. So he voted for Trump because he doesn't trust Democrats to take his concerns seriously as a farmer. And he wanted, you know, the businessman Trump to sort of help him out on that. So there were, I talked to folks after that trip and for several of the liberals who had gone down to that trip, that was like an aha moment. Like here they thought that the reasons that basically they thought those folks must have voted for Trump. Um, you know, they, they must've voted opposite me because they feel opposite me on all these things that matter to me, whether it's same sex marriage or race or like these other things, whatever. But actually <laughs> there was a big chunk of stuff they were missing, which were these these different economic things that only farmers would care about. And so when a whole, when, when you're a partisan on one side and you're missing the real concerns of people that may not sort of line up with the stuff that scares you, you're, you're, you're missing a big chunk of what motivates other people, what actually motivates other people. And Marcos, you mentioned, you know, the New York Times. I mean, our media already has a lot of narratives and being a journalist, I know that it's 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 convenient and good to just kind of keep hammering on those narratives. And it's difficult for journalism to be curious, frankly, and to ask what what is missing. Um, And we're doing a lot of sort of copies of copies of copies of voices and stories online and on Twitter and in the news instead of actually going to the primary source and just sitting down and saying, what are your concerns with this? And you might find stuff that's really surprising and and really relatable. So once you learn that, you realize, oh, wait a minute, (laughs) there could be a whole story here I'm not seeing. And if you don't see the whole story, how are you going to solve the problems? Part of that, of course, is a resource issue. And I mean, this is we don't want to get into this conversation because it's like a whole different kettle of fish. But, you know, 
the the death of local journalism. And so when you're talking about copying, copying, copying of the same narrative, you know, it it, it is it's harder to get at these narratives when they're remote and, you know, and there's a lot of times not a, not real local journalists anymore, um, you know, spinning them out and, and actually digging for them. But um, th- again, that's kind of a different. Let me just ask yeah. you about <clears throat> this group of people that went down to Seattle. Was it, it they weren't all journalists, were they? Was it, or no, was it all no. no, 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 so no, no, it was all got- locals. Yeah. And you were on a fact-finding mission. Like, why were you on a fact-finding mission? Like, why did these people vote for Trump? Is that what it was? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, the purpose of the mission, uh, the purpose of the event was right after the election, a lot of folks who read the newsletter that I founded in Seattle called The Evergrey and were in our community had emailed to say, I want to be, I want to understand, I want to be curious about Trump voters, but I don't know any. I don't know any of them. Right. And And I'm just, I'm really, really befuddled and then we found this interactive map on the washington post where you could plug in your county and it spits out the county nearest you that voted mirror opposite you interesting and so then i just kind of like did some cold calls and emails to a rural county in oregon until i found someone who could help it plan plant help us plan it and these people signed up and we went so did you find on the other side that they were as interested in what the hell you were thinking as you were in what the oh, hell they were thinking? What a yeah. great question. That is a wonderful question. And yes, um, they were, but definitely from another place. So, okay. you know, <laughs> there's that distinction between general generalities and specifics. <clears throat> so I'm going to move to specifics. You know, Sherman County, Oregon has 1,700 people in the whole county. It is a, um, it is a Republican stronghold. No politician ever visits because why bother? Right. So there's that there um, because it's so agricultural, agriculturally based their economy and, and agriculture and farming, especially family farms are really difficult business to get into. Most of their family members and their kids, they can't stay on the farm. There's nothing for them there. So they end up going to cities. They end up going to Portland or Seattle or what have you. Right. So they're going to cities all the time. So when, when we got there, it became pretty clear that for the folks from Sherman County, they were there because they don't feel seen at all. Like they, for them, it's like nobody, a group of people coming from Seattle to visit them. We met in a town called Morrow that has like 200 people in it, right? Never happens. So, so for them, from their perspective, this was the big city people and it was their chance to try to show the big CD people who they are. And I didn't expect that coming in. When, when, I, when, I, when I got there, I had it in my head. They have a lot of, to learn from us. And I realized while I was there what a self-serving assumption that was. Because I have a lot to learn from them. I don't know what life is like when you never see a road sign, you know, and it's just surrounded by hills. And, like, it's, it's, it's such a different lifestyle. <sighs> So anyway, it was humbling and it was interesting. But I, but I think in your question, I bet there's also maybe, tell me if I'm wrong, a sense of sort of, are they curious? Are they yeah. curious about liberal ideas? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's a, that's a fair uh, It's the asymmetry, the fear of asymmetry. We're going to work and we're going to try to understand these people, but they don't care because they already have their assumptions about us. And you're, the way you say that actually reinforces that because you said they wanted to be seen. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't about and, learning about the liberals from Seattle. Right, it was about right. me, me, me. Right. right. And we had we had um, 
what Sarah Longwell on, who's a Republican, anti-Trump Republican. We had her on, I don't know, months ago, um, mm-hmm. probably in the spring. And she does a lot of focus groups. Um, so, you know, this isn't a journalistic endeavor, but she's trying to ask, you know, ask people how you got to where they got and why they believe certain things. And she was talking about, you know, when you talk, when you talk to rural Americans, she said, you know, they, they have a lit when you ask them about Democrats, they have a list of things that they don't like about Democrats. Now, whether mm-hmm. or not, you know, some of this has been fed to them by Republicans. But um, but, you know, they've got a list that's I remember that quote. I remember her saying that. So there's mm-hmm. like this severe bias going into that conversation. Now, I don't know that these folks did. I'm not saying they did. But, you know, it. so. So, yes, in your question and then I'll shut up and give you a chance mm-hmm. to answer. But in in, in in my question, I do wonder, like, are they at all curious about why we think the way we do? Yeah. Yeah. And I I hear this. A lot. And I think it's a really challenging question. Um, and I do not have the full answer to this because because I think there's this sense, right? If I'm going to be curious, I need to see the equal amount of effort and curiosity on the other side or else I, I don't feel like this is a fair bargain, right? And so the reason, among the reasons this is challenging is because different people have a different sense of who has the upper hand on being seen, right? So you know, groups who have been marginalized obviously are like, we are not being seen enough. So we need people to come way more toward us than we're going to go toward them, right? The problem is that just about everybody in a polarized environment makes that argument for themselves. So everyone feels like their views are the ones not really being seen or acknowledged by the world and then wants to demand a whole lot of curiosity from someone else before they will actually bother, so that's, that becomes the issue is like, if you really look around and talk to a lot of people, I mean, part of the thing about polarization is like, all sides feel like the conversation is not fair to them. All sides feel like something's broken. All sides feel like they're not being seen. And that's ultimately like what every human being wants, if you just kind of get down to it. So, so it's like their reason for not being seen more important than my reason or their reason more important than their reason. And I just think you can get lost in that really easily. And at some point, someone just has to and I'm going to say it crassly, someone just has to be the fool. Someone has to be the fool to take that, to take that step and just do and just say, you know what, maybe I don't care how curious they are. I'm going to be curious about them. And then we'll see what happens. In my experience, curiosity does model curiosity. And to be <laughs> more fair to the experience at Sherman County, they were extraordinarily curious. I mean, they asked incredible questions of, of the folks from King County. But that doesn't, but that is, that doesn't kind of take away, you know, the presumption we have that people on the other side don't care about us. They don't really want to know. But then again, it's like most of their kids are liberal and living in the city. You know what I mean? So they care about them. (laughs) So, so is it true that they're not curious? Yeah. So I understand the practicality and and before we, you know, we're we're getting into the last 10 minutes. At some point we want to talk about practical, some of your practical um, application of this. Um, And I totally get it like at a family holiday party and, yeah. and maybe with some friends. Um, I still not fully a hundred percent understanding from a societal standpoint. And I know there's, there's something there, but I'm not quite grasping it. So let me, let me, let's go to Sherman County and let's talk, you know, this farmer who says I trust Republicans to on this uh, United States water. Rights. Water to the United States rule. Yeah. Yeah. What? So like, okay. Yeah. If you have a watering hole in your own property, like it's, it's okay. It's, it's yours. I agree with you. 
Mm-hmm. That's not, does that get them more closely than suddenly being like, you know what, these liberals, these Democrats aren't as much of a threat? It doesn't, yeah. right? No, because because trust is a far bigger beast than, than, than us all being robots and checking off boxes. You know, there's, there's mountains of uh, partisan distrust that needs to be overcome and that we will do our darndest to not have to overcome, right? We will rationalize our way to continue to dislike the other side. Uh, to some to to an absurd degree, you know, if we were to imagine the thought experiment that suddenly Republicans are doing all these things Democrats want, <laughs> it's not going to just like proportionally everyone's going to warm up to each other. There is baggage. There is a no. lot of baggage. And, and you see it, and they're not giving Joe Biden credit for the child tax credit. Like there's policies, and they'll literally say Joe Biden has done nothing for me as they right. cast a check on a law that Joe Biden passed. So so we see that. And I think that's part of the frustration. But there's also you talk trust. Trust is a really, really big one. Right. Because I'll say we're not racist. We're not. And I'm like, yeah, you are. Mm-hmm. Who like um, is am I having the wrong assumption in your view or mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm looking at statistically like that individual may not be individually a racist. Right. But I, I look at the numbers. I look at the surveys and it's clear. The data says that that race is a huge motivator in how conservatives act. Mm-hmm. So they're not, I don't feel like they can even like have an honest conversation. They're not going to tell me the truth that they're homophobic and racist. Would they, is there, a, is there an environment where they know. admit to that? Like, is anyone comfortable admitting some kind of potential deep flaw to someone who's being, who wants them to change and be being hostile? Like, no, that'll never happen. Like that'll I, never happen. I don't know. I mean, some yeah. people are, do seem more and more comfortable with that. I mean, frankly, I, so, so <laughs> I said just before you came on, see, we drove, it's so interesting that you're from mm-hmm. Kings County. So I drove up to Seattle for Thanksgiving. I'll, I'll be quick. I promise. Mm-hmm. But I went through Oregon. I went through Southern Oregon, you know, Northern California, Southern Oregon, et cetera, uh, Northern Oregon, Seattle. So there was this woman on the playground. I can't even remember. I think she was in Redding, California, actually. But she was on the playground and she had this shirt on that said, um, you know, fuck your feelings. Mm. And, you know, and increasingly what we see with, I feel like especially people on the right, and sure, it's my own bias, but is is this sort of militant attitude toward mm-hmm. Yeah, screw you. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care what you think or who you are or whatever. My freedoms are more important. And I, I don't give a damn about your masking, your life, literally. I don't give mm. a damn about your life. Um, you know, and it's just so hard to get past that mm-hmm. um, because there there are some people who are just like militant at this point and, you know, are willing to take up arms against the government, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think you've named, I mean, this is the behavior that gets us to such a stalemate. Right. And, you know, I don't know if y'all are open to acknowledging and admitting, right. That uh, a sort of (laughs) that, that on the left, there is also militant kind of attitudes, you know, aimed at the right with bumper stickers, with swear words all over the place. We're, We're all doing this to each other. Um, so what we're kind of showing is you don't matter. 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 <laughs> and it's like, well, no one can expect to, to want to listen in that kind of environment. Um, but, but what you're, what you're really asking about is how you, how you, how the heck you're supposed to get over that and through that. And one thing I remember is that the folks who go that far are quite the minority. 
they seem like the majority because especially if you're if you're more partisan, you're surrounded by other partisans and we do amplify these things. We really do. But they don't. If you look at the data, people who are this vocal and this done and this hostile are just not that many Americans. Um, But we allow them to paint the picture of the entire other side. And then we sort of set up our defenses and our convictions that, you know, we just can't go. We just can't go there. So I think that's the first thing is like understanding that what we think we see is not real. But that is that is a really difficult thing to, to dismantle and unpack. But but I think we kind of have to, um, because if it were true, right, that everyone on the other side is basically that bumper sticker. Oh, my gosh. Like we're we're already lost. But thankfully, it's not true. And even the people who are that bumper sticker, I've learned, like I've talked to people who have that bumper sticker, you know what I mean? And when you actually talk to them and you don't necessarily see them as I am talking to that bumper sticker, it's like, no, you're talking to, to a dude or a, or a woman or a person. You're, you're talking to a person. I mean, you, we know this. It's, they're not the bumper sticker, but it becomes, the bumper sticker becomes so big that it, it becomes them. And then why would you engage? So it's also about kind of like trying to see what's behind all that. Uh, but it takes, especially when we're so exhausted, it, it takes a lot. So, so we're, we're coming up, you know, to a, we're, we're not totally at the end, but we're nearing the end. We've spent mm-hmm. a lot of time talking about, I mean, important things for sure, but, but we're coming up on family season, on holiday season, on, you know, sometimes being in an uncomfortable room or not going home to see your family because you don't want to be in that uncomfortable room. Yeah. So you've engaged your parents on this stuff. I, I assume I, I oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I did not have, yeah. Okay. I didn't have time to do a full due diligence here, but, um, how 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 do you how did you engage them and have you flipped them? No, I'm just kidding. I know that's not what you're talking about, <laughs> yeah. but that but but no. I so forget I asked that question. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, but you know how 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 have you found ways of having constructive constructive conversations in in that uncomfortable room? Right. So a couple of things that have worked really well. Uh, one is to not ask why they believe what they believe, but to ask how they got to those beliefs. That way people tell you a story and give you a tour rather than feeling like they're on trial. You know, why? Um, so long as people feel like you you do believe they matter, uh, you can learn a lot. You can have a constructive conversation. Another thing that really helps ha- has helped with my parents and helps with all of this uh, for me and, and really many people who practice this is a very powerful question is to ask, what are your concerns? Um, and asking that question becomes a commitment. And I'll say why in a second. But what are your concerns is a question of curiosity that is extraordinarily illuminating, like extremely informative. To even ask it, you have to get to the point in your own head where you don't already know the answer. Now, a lot of us think we already know the answer. Why would I ask what their concerns are? I know exactly why they hate this and that. No, you don't. You may know what the statistics say about their group in general, but you don't know about this individual. And there may be all kinds of surprises in their story. So actually listen to their concerns. The follow-up question to what are your concerns is anything else? Because what we tend to do is we ask about concerns. We ask any question. And as soon as we hear something we want to jump in on, we jump in. And so we've really only turned on the faucet for like three drops of what they said. And then we jump. And then maybe, you know, we stop being curious and we start again trying to just push, push ourselves in, insist our beliefs on the other person. But leave the spigot open for longer and really see if you can collect that set of concerns. 
And my bet is that you will see overlapping concerns and you will see concerns that you find totally valid. Um, because at the end of the day, we actually do share a lot of values across the divide. We just stack them in a different order for different issues. So all of a sudden you're talking about common ground. And then my mom, the thing that my mother says is the most valuable thing that we do that keeps her talking with me for hours on end about really hard stuff is we actually acknowledge when the other has made good points. So I, I usually say, you know, the Spanish version, the English version of like, that's fair. Buen punto. Ah, okay. Si, sí, cierto. Yeah, that's interesting. Even if it's really, really, really small, I think a lot of people feel that when they say something like that's a good point, they are conceding and therefore losing. You're not conceding and you're not losing. What you're doing is you're creating sort of a meaningful sort of space between you and a conversation where you're exploring ideas. Um, and the more that you do that, the more that your guard will come down um, and maybe the, the less afraid you'll be about just putting yourself into that context uh, where you're both learning from each other. So we end up like my parents and I just end up in this like other planet in our conversations, just a completely different planet. And then we land again and then stuff like moves around in our heads. And it's really cool. But have either of us changed our mind on really? No. But we understand why the other person thinks what they think. And it's led to like, we're just not hostile uh, toward anyone else who right. believes these things. You know what I mean? And that's really helped like life become a little more manageable. Yeah. You're not demonizing. And then, you know, my, my fear is these people who are willing to like take up arms against the government. If, if they can be if they can be talked down from demonizing the other side, then that makes that a lot harder. Anyway, yeah. sorry. And I, and I would edit that a little bit to say heard down, right? Cause we talk about talking down, talking down here down. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of folks go to extremes because they feel they have no other option and they might feel they have no other option because I believe this others may not. I believe a lot of these extremes are because of unacknowledged concerns. I don't mean concerns that need to be like listened to to the point of changing our government and putting Trump back in office. No, 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 no. I mean acknowledgement. We're really bad at even that, right? Just, just being able to look someone in the eye after having heard them and saying, I see where you're coming from and actually meaning it. I see why you're scared, you're anxious, you're nervous, you have this deep concern. That, you can always see people's go, people go like, they relax. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. But you got to get to that point before you can even really talk. Right. I, I get I get frustrated. Um, like I can understand rural America, the economic devastation, the opioid crisis, the all the jobs have you know been shipped off to China, Mexico. That that hopelessness. All the youth are leaving. I get those things. The piece where I've never been able to so overcome is why <laughs> Democrats are actually trying to, you know, put money in your pocket and trying to help you get out of this and retrain mm -hmm. you. And you're going with the guys that say government's not going to do anything. And it's going to side with the corporations that shipped out. And so there, there's a block there. And I know it's a bit of a tri um, digression. What's really interesting to me about the book and all these things you talk about is don't go into a conversation. Like it's a competition. Yeah. Like nobody's going to win or lose. Like just, it, it's just understanding using the word how, Instead of why, why is definitely very accusatory. Yeah. Um, I, that makes a lot of sense. These are actually really good pieces of advice, even in talking to my kids, you know, instead of saying, why did you not clean your room? Um, which immediately, boom, you know, the guard goes down and they're, they're in fight or flight mode yep. immediately. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Or talking to a coworker or talking to your boss or your employee or, or your neighbors. Like th these are, these are just basic 
communication skills. This is not even about politics. I mean, if we were to apply this in our daily lives, I think everybody would have a more pleasant experience, hmm. right? Yeah, and the world would be less scary. Like, we want fear to do good work for us. We want anxiety to push us to solve the problems in front of us. We don't want fear and anxiety to amplify things to the point where they're warped and they're not real. That's what's happened. So the only way I think to check that is to come back to the primary sources, right? Like, and the primary sources are people and maybe people in your own lives, right? The secondary sources Look, we just have to admit, right? Like, again, I've been a journalist. I know how media works. You know how media works. We know what sells. We know what spreads, right? And these things are not necessarily helping everybody get to a calm and reasonable place. They're just not. So we're going to have to kind of take the reins, I think, as people. Stop waiting for politicians to solve this problem for us and practice it in our own lives. My, my belief is that if people just get like one tick more curious in their own circles, like you're super closed and all you do is this, great, like make it this. <laughs> if you're here, okay, make it here. Just push the edges of wherever you are. It does not have to be, I'm going to talk to a Nazi tomorrow. No, please, no. <laughs> you know, like I get that question all the time. Like, you want me to talk to a Nazi? I'm like, well, don't start there, uh, which comes from, um, that comes from John Powell of the Othering and Belonging Institute. He has a wonderful anecdote about that. It's like, no, like <laughs> you look at your own self. You know, part of the problem with these prescriptions is that we pretend that they work the same for everybody. They don't. Like everyone is different. You have different families and different challenges and different places where you yourself want to trigger your own curiosity, right? So Marcos, you just, you just named an excellent example. Why are more Latinos voting Republican? It's a great question. <laughs> you can, you know, my parents could tell you that for them, it's a perfectly reasonable and valid and better choice to be Mexican immigrant and vote for a Republican. Why? They could, they could give you their sense, right? And like others, others will have their stories and, and I hear them all the time and they're very interesting and they really deepen and complicate this everything around immigration and they illuminate more sort of parts of the landscape of immigration than maybe we're used to seeing. So that's what I want also as a storyteller and journalist is I want, I want things to get more complicated because they'll get more true. It's a great, it's a great, uh, I think, summary of, of uh, where you want people to go. And I think it's an incredibly optimistic and hopeful vision. And I think you're, I really love the don't start with the Nazis because really there's a lot of lower hanging fruit. There. Much, much lower. <laughs> you do not have to talk to a Nazi. It's okay. <laughs> that's, why, so, that's why I focus on the suburbs. I think there's fewer Nazis in the suburbs. I there you go. That, I think you know, you're probably right. You know, and so, those are those are high propensity voters. So yeah, so Monica, we're we're out of time. So this is your chance to to pitch your your uh, your projects and your books. Uh, let us know where people can find your materials. Oh yes, so if you go to um, my Twitter at Moni Guzman, M O N I G U Z M A N, uh, my link tree on my profile has uh, links to pre-order my book, which is called "I Never Thought of It That Way," and it comes out March eighth, twenty twenty-two. You can also go to Bitly slash Reclaim Curiosity to sign up for my newsletter. So yeah, the newsletter at, bit, at Bitly slash Reclaim Curiosity, and um, find links to pre-order at my Twitter at Moni Guzman or my Instagram also at Moni Guzman. Monica, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. So glad you were able to join us. This was actually, I think, really good ahead of the holidays. I think a lot of people are going to be struggling with this in the, All right. in the weeks ahead. You can do this, everybody. You can do it. I promise. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right.
Carrie, do you feel better about this? No, so much good stuff in there. I mean, you know, I'm a so journalist much. at heart, so there's just a lot of stuff in there. I mean, I will say just to re- just by way of repeating that, you know, she talked about rather than the why, when you're talking to people, how they got there rather than why, why do you believe this, how they got there? And she said, one of your, one of the best questions is what are your concerns? You know, so, um, so I, I, you know, I think like having some very specific things that you can revert back to in order to draw people out rather than shut them down is, is good. I, uh, um, I would also say it was really interesting to her to talk about um, anxiety because I think all of us have a lot of anxiety in these times, especially if we're politically aware. And the idea that she wants the anxiety to propel us to get more curious rather than more afraid. And the, 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 the fear factor is a divider. Um, and I'm not saying I don't have fear because I do, but it is it creates division. It, it lessens communication and the curiosity can can help you know, mitigate that a little bit. Yeah. And to really sort of circle back to one of our original points, I mean, imagine if the gay rights movement had just completely shut everybody out who didn't support gay rights or the right to marry when it was at 30% approval rating. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. it, that would have been dead on arrival. Right. Right. So true. And it Can was I communication. Make, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Can I make one last point is that I don't want to people people to confuse because there is there are gradations of activism, right? There there's communicating with people and trying to have a back and forth. But sometimes it's really just called for to have an action, to have a, you know, an activist action where you aren't trying, where you're, you're trying to make people uncomfortable because you want them to have to talk about something that they don't want to talk about. What Monica is talking about is something very different from that. So I don't want people to get confused about these different gradations of activism. Drawing people out into a conversation where you're being a curious is a form of activism. It's a very different form of activism than, we are oppressed. We need to let people know that we're hurting. And the only way to do it is to have this direct action, or not the only way, but one of the best ways to do it is to make people uncomfortable through this direct action. They're not mutually exclusive, for sure. Right. And I think that's an important right. point. This is, not, this is not to invalidate anybody else's focus, strategies, whatever. This is another way to understand each other, which could lead. Uh, and, and she talks in the book about how this farmer in this rural county of Turns out he was pro gay marriage, pro like it, it, that. That wasn't what was motivating him, and everybody just assumed he was this monster that was wanted out to take away our rights. So finding those commonalities could have value, serve a purpose uh, moving forward. So, Carrie, that's our show. Thank you so much to Monica Guzman for joining us. Her book is, I just want to get the name right again. I never thought of it that way. It's available for pre-order on Amazon. Um, Carrie, thank you so much for being such a wonderful co-host as always. Thanks to Walter Einenkelt for producing the show. And thank you, viewers and listeners, for joining us. Uh, we are here every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. And the podcast goes live on Wednesday. So you can talk to us at dailycoast.com, at our Twitter at Daily Coast, and uh, everywhere else that uh, your, your, your podcast uh, exists. Please like us, subscribe. Uh, let people know about what we're doing. Um, We appreciate you. See you all next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.